So this morning we conclude our series called Earthy Spirituality, which has been, uh, we've looked at a number of episodes in the life of David. And we saw how David was a very real, raw, uh, earthy person. There was a lot of different pieces to that, right? We learned of David, some of David's triumphs. We talked about David being anointed as king. We talked about David defeating Goliath. We talked about some of the mistakes he made, David and Uriah and Bathsheba. We talked about some of the powerful women in David's life. We talked about Abigail, and we had all kinds of other um, side journeys as well. Dan helped us think through David and Jonathan and all of those different episodes. But today, we want to conclude this series. Now, you may, if you've been paying attention throughout, if you've been with us for these other sermons, um, you will know this. But if you haven't, you can go back on the website. You can look at all of those at your um, leisure. But you will notice that we have made it a point to not really... Uh, make any attempt to paint over or to um, shine up David's image. In fact, part of what appeals to us, part of what draws us, or at least me, to the story of David is the earthiness of that story, the brokenness. There were, in fact, as we've gone through this story, we've noticed that there are actually more mistakes missteps and outright disasters than there are neat and tidy, beautiful outcomes. And yet, as we've talked about, Scripture describes David as a man after God's own heart. And so we have this interesting juxtaposition of this man described as one after God's own heart and this very broken, um, raw, Man, a king who uses his position to take what he wants, a father who ignores his children's foibles, and I would argue his children altogether in some instances. And yet, we know that he is described as both of these things. As we have seen so clearly, we recognize that David is not or was not a perfect moral example, but that he was called one after God's own heart, not because of his upright living, we talked about that last week, but because of his soft heart towards God, that he was quick to repent and repent fully and open to seeing God at work all throughout his life. The story of David in the Bible is a story of a real life, a complicated, messy, and oftentimes broken life, but real life nonetheless. In the midst of that real life, we learn of David's real faith, faith that engages that messy, broken life head on. David teaches us that life requires that real life requires real faith. This is the kind of real faith we need in the midst of our own real lives. As we talked about last week, I want to remind us 
that David, even though we've spent all these weeks talking about David's story, David is not the central story of Scripture. Jesus is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Part of the reason that, you, that I chose to do this series and that I love this story of David is because of, um, in the words of Eugene Peterson, that the story of David is so connected to earth, it's so among us, so incarnational, that it prefigures the story of Jesus with us. It helps us to understand that Jesus does not come and become one of us set apart. He becomes one of us. And he identifies with us. Brian Zond says this about the story of God and his people. He says, the Old Testament tells the story of Israel coming to know the living God. But the story doesn't stop until we arrive at Jesus. It isn't Joshua, the son of Nun, who gives us the full revelation of God, but Yeshua of Nazareth. It is not the warrior poet David who gives us the full revelation of God, but the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. We understand Joshua and David as men of their time, but we understand Jesus Christ as the exact imprint of God's very being. That is why... This morning, we conclude this series talking about the son of David, the title that Jesus was given. And so our text this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. It reads like this. Going on from that place, he, Jesus, went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that, that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? The son of David is for the people of Jesus' time a political title. 
And as Jesus moved through uh, Galilee and Jerusalem and the Holy Land, as he performed miracles and as he confronted power and authority in both uh, the Pharisees and in Rome, he was tied to this title, Son of David. It was a title that tied him to political aspirations. People were hoping that he would be the one to finally throw off the oppressors of Rome and establish David's throne again. A temporal kingdom, a political kingdom. But that was not the plan. That was not what Jesus had in mind. In fact, Jesus had something much bigger in mind. Yes, he was coming to establish his kingdom, but it was not a kingdom of this earth. It was not a kingdom of politics or party, or um, it was not a kingdom of policy. It was a kingdom of God. It was the inbreaking of God's kingdom in this World. We see this especially in verses 12 to 18. Verse 18 says this, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Friends, Jesus came to redeem real sinners with real lives. In fact, he was so good at relating to people's real lives that the religious people, the religious leaders, the pastors, right? The people who really cared about being good Jewish people accused him of being just like the broken, messy people that he loved. You remember that part, right? They accused him of being a wine-bibber. I love that. Sometimes you just got to go back to the King James, right? A wine-bibber, a drunk, as one who did not care for the law, that he was impure. He didn't do it right. He didn't follow the rules because he loved broken, messy people and he was about more than just politics. And for this, we're told that the Pharisees wanted to kill him. We hear this refrain throughout the Gospels as Jesus operates more and more as he heals more and more people, as he speaks truth to power more and more times, we hear this refrain that the Pharisees start figuring out how it is that they're going to get rid of this Jesus because he is not playing by the rules. One, I've often wondered two things. One, if Jesus had leaned into, this, into the politics of the situation, if when the people had said to him, oh, is this the son of David? He had kind of leaned in and said, yeah, here we go. We're going we're gonna to take over that. We're going to throw the Romans out. We're going to establish our kingdom, all that, that if the Pharisees would have fallen in line. 
given the way that things go, I kind of lean the direction that they probably would have. Because who doesn't want power? The other thing that always strikes me when we talk about this part of the story, the Pharisees deciding they need to get rid of Jesus. I mean, and I say this, I say this as a professional religious person. Right? I have the letters behind my name. I have all of that stuff. I, if, anything, if anybody in this room represents the Pharisees more than me, you, there aren't many of us. There's a few. I see you. We're prof- we were professional religious people. But I don't know about you, but oftentimes in church life, I've sat in meetings. I've sat in conversations. And I've looked around me and I've thought, you know what? We look like somebody in the story. We look like somebody in the story, but I don't think it's who we think it is. You know, we get, we get all full of ourselves and we think we look like Jesus when really we look and act like the Pharisees. Because we don't want anything to do with that mess. We want everything to do with neat, tidy power. And control. So while the son of David title was not what the Jews, what the people of Jesus' day expected, it is still accurate. It is just that the scope of Jesus' mission was way bigger than they could imagine. Jesus came not just to reestablish the throne of David in Israel. Jesus came to establish the throne of David throughout the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't just come to redeem the people of Israel. Jesus came to redeem everybody. Jesus, the son of David, wasn't after just delivering the chosen people. He was after and is after delivering the whole of creation. His kingdom is all about setting all things right. The good news for us is that our our messy, broken, real lives are a part of that plan. It's time for us to get real about our lives and stop pretending with one another that we have it all together and turn to Jesus. We need to stop dressing ourselves up and showing up at church and pretending like everything's okay when it's not. We need to start telling each other the truth And together turning to Jesus. For us religious types, maybe that means that we start serving some of the same folks Jesus cared for. And what if our goal was to do it so well that we get some accusations thrown our way by the morality police? For the rest of us, the son of David is not only aware of your brokenness, pain, sin, and screw-ups. His heart is filled with compassion for you. 
a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. One of the most formative stories in my life comes from our family history. Some of you may know or have heard me mention that my great-grandfather was a covenant pastor. And uh, he was, this was way back in the early 20th century. So this is back in the day when we were still the Swedish uh, mission friends. And uh, he preached in Swedish. And uh, in about 1929 or so, the, the denomination encouraged, not required, but encouraged their pastors to start preaching in English. Well, my great-grandfather claimed that he could not speak English well enough to preach in English. And so uh, he retired. He was my age, about 53, 54 years old. Now, this is back in the 20s and 30s, right? Pastors back then didn't do anything else. <laughs> and there was no pension. And so my grandpa had to go to work to support the family. Now, as I talked through with my grandpa about that, he, he, always, he said later in life that he thinks it wasn't really actually the Swedish thing that made my grandpa quit preaching. It was that his eyes were failing and he couldn't read anymore. And, and so that was a way for him to, to get out. But that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is after he retired... This was during the Depression. There was a camp in the little town, Kensington, Minnesota. I mean, height of Kensington, Minnesota, maybe 315 people. This is a small town. But during the Depression, there was a hobo camp along the rails, as there were in many towns across America. And, and one day, one of those men in that camp committed suicide. None of the pastors in town would give him a funeral or bury him. My great-grandfather rented out the town hall and gave him a funeral, to which all these other pastors showed up. And apparently, he preached a sermon about grace and then buried that man in the Covenant Cemetery. Hearing that story left a deep imprint on me. For all our foibles, for all our brokenness, if we can remember and center grace, we'll be okay. But friends, that can be hard work. In fact, Jesus was so serious about his mission, about dispensing and demonstrating and giving grace to restore us to God that he went to the cross, bled, died, and rose again so that we might experience grace. He didn't do it because we followed the rules. He did it for those who followed the rules and those who didn't. He did it because it is the very nature of God to dispense grace, to be love, to restore us, 
to right relationship and wholeness. And friends, I am here this morning to tell you, regardless of where where you find yourself, maybe you're the most religious person in the room and you are the most moral person in the room. Maybe you are not. Maybe you are the furthest thing from that. Doesn't matter. Either way, there is nothing, not one thing in your real life that his sacrifice did not cover. Not one thing. So whether your sin is one of religious piety and superiority or whether it's the most deprived thing that you can think of, Jesus covers it all. And my hope My prayer for you today is that you let this day be the day that you let the Son of David make you whole. Amen.